Today, as we end this sermon series, um, I want to talk about everyone all in loving the city. And we're going to talk about something that's critical to us as a church that gives you rationale for why we do what we do. Uh, the San Francisco Examiner article headlined, Urbanized Planet Ahead. I'll put this up here. In 1950, there were only one city in the world with a population of over 10 million. Today, there are over 20 such cities, 12 of which arrived in the last 20 years. Many experts have said that by the year 2030, over 60% of the world will live in cities. This is not beginning to happen in Africa, Asia, and to a growing degree in Latin America, where cities are exploding with new immigrants from villages and rural areas. Missiologists have said that many of the unreached people groups in remote areas of the world might be gone in the next few decades. Over the next decade, over half a billion people will move into the cities of Africa and Asia. That's one new Bangkok every two months. And lastly, by 2050, two-thirds of the world will live in cities. Two-thirds of the entire world's population will live in cities. Apostle Paul in Acts 17 says something powerful that we sometimes glance over. He says, God determined the time set for them and the exact, say the next word with me, ready? Exact what? Places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. See, typically, if I were to ask you, why are you in the city today? Why do you live in the city of Chicago? Many of us, some of us, like myself, I grew up here. We immigrated to the city. We lived in the city. But for a lot of us, if I were to ask you why you're in the city, answers would go something along the lines of, well, this is where I came to school. This is where I got a job. This is where I'm going through grad school. I like the city because of the culture, the restaurants, the food, the music, so on and so forth. Or I'm in the city because there's an issue, a cause that I care about, so on and so forth. God says you're in the city. Why? Because he put you and me here. God determined the times and the places where people should live. So two things real quick. One is God cares very much where you live. Let me ask you something. How many of us pray about where we should live as much as we pray about our future spouses? How many of us actually pray about where we should live in seeking God's heart? Why do we just take this for granted? Why do we just figure that God doesn't care? Why do we just decide this realm I could decide for myself and I don't really need to pray and seek God's heart when God says, I determine the times and the places you should live. Should you not pray about where you're living? Secondly, God says, I did this. That is, if you're in the city, he brought you and me to the city so that what? There's a reason so that we would what? Seek him and find him. God says the place where you live is intentionally determined so that somehow through that you could encounter God and get to know him. I mean, how many of us have this perspective about where we live? How many of you have this perspective that says, God brought me here to where I am today intentionally so that I would seek God and find God? See, for the majority of us, some of us this morning will love the sermon because we're like, I, you don't need to convince me. I love the city. I, I want a beer. It's where I always raise my family. This, I, this is where I want to be. And then for some of us, though, and this is where I'm going to be addressing uh, portions of you. Some of us are like, I can't wait to get the heck out. I can't wait to get the heck out. And I'm going to press you again. Are you praying, Lord, where do you want me to live? Some of us are just like, I'm here for a season. When I graduate, I'm out of here. When I get another job, I'm out of here. When I meet some, I'm out. And for some of us, press, we came to the city because we were drawn to the city for the right things. And we are at a place today where we're maybe jaded, where we've become cynical, hard-hearted. We're saying, oh, I just want to leave. Why is new community in the city 
And this is such an important sermon, you guys, because it lies at the core of our mission statement. We desire, we desire to be a city within a city. Real quick before I go, if you're like, you know what, I want to live in the country. I want to live in the rural areas. I wanna, that's where I want to be, Peter. Uh, I, I want you to hang in there because we're going to talk about you too, okay? Like this is not just for, okay, he's just going to talk about the city, the importance of This is for all of us. Why is new community in the city? Three reasons. Reasons are theological, historical, and missional. Why is the new community in the city? Why do we want to plant church in the city? Reasons are theological, historical, missional. I'm going to be really quick with the theological, historical, and then spend more time on missional. You ready? Okay, here we go. Theological. Here's the way I would put it. God begins history in a garden, but it ends in a city. God begins history in a garden, but it ends in a city. What do I mean? We talk about this a lot. All of creation headed towards a climax of redemption and restoration. And when you look at the end of the Bible and see the finished product, our future residence of what the entire created order, a choir order, a new heavens and a new earth in which God's peace, justice, and righteousness, uh, the values and priorities of the kingdom will reign. When you look at the future residence, this is what the Bible says. Revelation 21, 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And I saw the holy what? City. The new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a beautiful uh, bride dressed for her husband. Verse 3, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is not among his people and God himself will be with them. Verse 15, the angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates and its wall. When he measured it, he found it was a square as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. Revelation 22.1. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life. When is the first time we see the tree of life? It's in the Garden of Eden. What is this? This is paradise restored and it's a city bearing 12 coops of crop with fresh crop each month no longer will there be curse upon anything for the throne of god and of the lamb will be there and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no night there no need for lamps or sun for the lord god will shine on them they will reign forever and ever i just put that on there because i think what it's saying is that the city will have the temperature of honolulu hawaii 365 days a year i'm just saying michael amen preach amen that's what I, no sun, no lamp. That's, it's just perfect warm weather. That's what I'm guessing. God begins history in a garden, but it ends in a city, a beautiful city, the new heavens and the new earth. Secondly, why are we in the city? The foundation of historical. In Acts chapter 16, verse 6 to 12, we find beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. And Paul is this powerful vision from God. And God says, I want you to go to Macedonia. And here's the interesting thing that Paul does. When God says, I want you to go to the Macedonia, all of Asia Minor, Paul does something that he did throughout every single one of his missionary journeys. It was almost a pattern in his life. He says, okay, Lord. He go, look at what he says in Acts 16. Look what he does. From there, verse 12, he reached Philippi, a major, what? City of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we stayed there several days. Whenever Paul wanted to reach an entire region, this was his pattern. He says, where's the largest city of that region? And I'm going to go there and do extensive urban church planting. And then when I'm done with that, I'm out of there. He plants a church in Philippi. He plants a church in Ephesus. He plants a church in Corinth. When you look at the letters that's written to these churches, these are churches in the Roman Empire that are in major metropolitan cities. The question is why? Paul was just simply being strategic. What do I mean? It's a historical fact, as we know today, that when you wanted to reach a culture, you reach the city of that culture. 
One commentator, the theologian, said the cities are the culture-forming wombs of society. Let me give you guys an analogy. When you and I think of culture, that is what we listen to, our values, priority, how we spend money, how we view sexuality. When you look at everything that comprises of culture, and if you think of a culture as a stream, cities are the pools in which this stream of culture flows out from. You know what's interesting to me? Christians bemoan and groan about the garbage in the culture. They moan the garbage that they drink out of the stream from, but they never ask the question of, why is what's flowing down the stream what it is, and how do we change that? How do we change that? Cities are the culture-forming wombs of society. Why? 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 When you think about the kinds of people, places, and institutions that disproportionately impact our culture, think about the music we listen to. Think about the arts. Think about philosophy. Think about the legal system. Think, Think about medicine. Think about all the things that we consume. The people that impact these the most tend to disproportionately live where? In the cities. One person put it this way, and I thought it was just powerful. When in the, in the village, you could win one lawyer to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But if you want to impact the entire justice system so that it's equitable for all, you go to places where there are the law schools. You go to places where the legal journals are written. You go to the places in which the primary shaping forces of the legal justice system is being developed. Same thing with finances. Same thing with medicine. This could go on and on and on. The cities are the culture-forming wombs of our society. You capture the city for Christ. You change the culture. You change the culture, and the influence goes out to the suburbs and to the rural areas. Historical fact. By the year 313 A.D., over 56, 57% of the Roman Empire was Christian. And Rodney Starks, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, says almost every, almost the entirety of that percentage of Christians lived in cities versus 90% of the countryside was still pagan. Matter of fact, scholars say that the word pagan, paganus, literally meant villager or a man of the farm or the city. The historical fact that you and I have to grapple with was this. When Christianity flourished the most, it was an urban phenomenon. Matter of fact, let me put it this way. The cityer the city, the more dense the city, the more pluralistic the city, the more multi-ethnic, multicultural the city, the more socially troubled the city, the more the gospel exploded. Why? Because the more socially troubled, the more multi-ethnic, the more multiracial, the more dense the cities, the more powerful the gospel was able to display its saving, reconciling, healing power. The gospel goes into multi-ethnic, multi-racial, exploding urban cities of the Roman Empire, places in which people go, Christianity would die there, which, by the way, is still our attitude today. Can I just ask, how many of you guys, when your parents or relatives found out you were going to live in the city of Chicago, they said, are you sure you want to do that? Lots of hands going up. Why? Here's our mentality. Especially for those of us that grew up maybe in the rural, suburban areas. The city is a difficult place. In the city, here's what's going to happen. You're going to encounter people with radically different value systems. Let me put it this way. The gospel is like a weak flashlight in your hand until you get into the city and then it starts shining really brightly. Why? Light shines brightest. Where? Where's darkest? Let me just give you an example. Let me just put it this way. How many of us, and I include myself, how many of us grew up in primarily homogenous environments, whether it be ethnically, racially, or even church-wise, and we had pat answers? We had pat answers to life. You know what I'm talking about? We had pat answers to life. Well, that's why non-Christians don't believe, or, well, that's why they behave the way they do. Pat answers. And here's what happened when you came into the city. You realize that the pat answers, what? They don't work. They don't work. All of a sudden in the city, you are faced with people with radically different value system, radically different religious, spiritual belief system. And here's what will happen. If you're a Christian, either you will go, my Christianity doesn't work, or the city will force you to be a more thinking, clearly communicating, more convicted, and here's what I really believe type of a Christian. 
The city will force you and I to go, I need to think about this. Why do I live, believe what I believe? I am surrounded by a group of people who are non-Christians, who have all kinds of different value systems. And where I came from, everybody sort of thought alike. Everybody kind of believed the same thing. And I had easy pat answers. But either I'm in the city, and I'm going to either think really hard about why I believe, so that my convictions get deep and strong, and I get better at communicating it. Or I go, it just doesn't work. I'm going to walk away. What has a city done to you? Has a city made you more thinking clearly, more convicted of I really believe? Because I can't just take things for granted anymore. I can't just assume things. There are bright, talented people who don't believe like I do, who challenge me at every corner. And what the city will do is it'll cause me to be a person who embraces the gospel at a much deeper level and saying, this is why I believe what I really believe. Bethany, do you know what I'm talking about? Has the city done to you as an artist? It has. I have so many of these conversations with people. And these are folks, by the way, who grew up in the church and in their mid-20s just walked away, goes, Christianity doesn't make any sense. And when I ask them, a lot of them say, I grew up with pat answers. I grew up with pat answers that my youth group taught me. And when I faced the real world, meaning the city, and people with radically different beliefs and priorities, I just wasn't prepared. And what the city did is either challenge you to say, it doesn't work, I'm done. Or it'll force you to go, I'm going to think deeper. I'm going to believe even stronger about why I believe. And I'm going to be more dynamic and more convinced and more clear about communicating what I believe. The city or the city, the more dense the city, the more urban the city, the more powerfully the gospel showed its power. Now, we're going to, we're going to look deeper at that as we look at the third point, which is the foundation of why we're in the city is missional. Missional, what do I mean? The city makes you more open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The city makes you more open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I think this is how you pronounce her name. Amen, man. Amen, man. Yes. Have you heard a song, Save Me? Save me. Save me. Listen to the lyrics. You look like a perfect fit for a girl in need of a tourniquet. But can you save me? Come on and save me. If you could save me from the ranks of the freaks who suspect they could never love anyone. Because I can tell you know what it's like. A long farewell of the hunger strike. But can you save me? Come on and save me. If you could save me from the ranks of the freaks who suspect they could never love anyone. You struck me dumb. Like radium, like Peter Pan or Superman. You have come to save me. Come on and save me. If you could save me from the ranks of the freaks who suspect they could never love anyone except the freaks, who suspect they could never love anyone but the freaks, who suspect they could never love anyone. Come on and save me. Why don't you save me if you could save me from the ranks of the freaks who suspect they could never love anyone except the freaks, who suspect they could never love anyone except the freaks who could never love anyone. Do you know why? This is so powerful. If you're not a Christian here, when Christians talk about salvation, it's not a religious thing. Salvation salvation is not just about going to heaven when you die. Salvation that all of us deep innately feel is this feeling and sense that we're born with. It's feeling and sense that we're born with. When the relationship that we were supposed to have with God was ruptured in the garden. Every single one of us in this room, please listen, every single one of us in this room is born with at least these things. We're born with the desire to be loved. We're born with the desire to be affirmed and accepted. We're born with the desire to find meaning, some purpose in life. The rupturing relationship with God in the garden has caused you and I to feel naked, ashamed, Guilty, not worthy of being loved, not worthy of being affirmed. So here's what we do. Martin Luther says, so we spend all of our lives finding these functional saviors. 
Because you just can't shake off that feeling of, I want to be loved. You can't just shake it off. I need to be affirmed. You can't just shake it off like, is there meaning to what I do? You can't shake it off. So you and I do everything and anything possible to go, somebody, something, please give me a sense of, I am worthy of love, I am worthy of affirmation, and there's meaning. And you replace that with, I am prettier, I'm smarter, I'm more intellectual, I'm successful, I'm rich, I drive these things, whatever. Fill in the blank to say, I am somebody. But that never completely fulfills it. Do you know, do you know why some of us are in Chicago? Um, can I... Can I look at, some of you guys may know this. This is the city we live in. Um, Chicago is home to 54 museums. Put up there. Uh, 200 theaters. Um, 15,000 restaurants. 77 neighborhoods. By the way, Grayson, how many of those have you been to? About 2,000? Yeah, okay. Uh, 31 miles of lakefront, 550 parks, 15 miles of bathing beaches, 200 plus annual parades, three of the world's tallest buildings. Do you know who comes to Chicago? People that want to make a lot of money. Chicago leads the nation in the number of business sectors, including Chicago's number one in high-tech employment, number two in financial center and Fortune 5 headquarters, number, number one in distribution center, number one in manufacturing, and number one in urban medical district. You know who else comes to Chicago? People who are very bright. It's one of the best cities for higher education. 487,000 students who are currently enrolled in 98 higher education institutions. That adds up to more than 20,500 master's degrees, 4,000 professional degrees, 1,850 doctoral degrees awarded every year. Some of you came to Chicago because you wanted the challenge and the promises of success, money, of achievement. But here's what you find in Chicago. Northwestern students, are you here? Here's what you find in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's, here's, oh, I could, you, Northwest, UFC, I mean, UIC, it doesn't, because here's what we find in Chicago, right? Here's what, you, you come to Chicago, it's like, that's where I want to be, the school. But here's what you find in Chicago. You all of a sudden come, you're like, holy cow, everybody else is very driven, who's very successful, who's very ambitious, are also in Chicago. Yes? Yes? So what do you find? Every day, whether you're a student or in business or whatever, you're constantly surrounded by people who are just as ambitious, just as successful, and mm, smarter than I am. And so what happens? You don't just give up. What do you do? You buckle down and you go, oh, yeah? (laughs) I am a big fish from a small pond, and I don't care how big this pond is. And what do you do? You buckle down and you're surrounded by the environment, so you're driven even harder, you're driven even more to work harder, to work longer hours, to study even more. Because you're not going to fall behind. And then what happens? You fall, I fall, into the worst form of sin, which is what? We start finding our salvation and our identity in what we do. I'm sorry I just undressed you this morning. You're not, you, you don't just work, you live for work. You don't just enjoy that relationship, you live for that relationship. You don't just want to get good grades, you live for good grades. And it has left you empty and so bare. And you can't just keep going because you've hit a brick wall and you're like, I can't just keep going. Here's the funny thing. We came to Chicago to be free. Free to do whatever I want to, away from my parents and my religious church, whatever. But you're not free. Nobody is free in this room. We're all enslaved to something. We're all enthralled by something. Every single one of us to get rid of the nakedness is saying, if I have that, if I have that, if I have that, I'll be okay. And the city has worn you out. You... It's worn you out. And your soul is empty and bare. You can't just keep going because you want to compete. You want to do better. You can't. Why? Because the salvation you're looking for in your work will never come. Salvation you're looking for in romance will never come. There's only one place where salvation can be found, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Because 
Jesus says, I came and lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. And when you place your faith in my work, although you are more wicked and sinful than you ever thought in me, you're more accepted and loved than you dared hope at the same time. And the acceptance and love you are looking for, I am telling you right now, if you try and find it in your work, it's going to leave you empty and dry. Save me. Save me. Say you cry. Here's, here's, here's how you get saved. Admit that you're not free. Can you do that? Can some of you admit this morning, Peter, I'm not free. I'm enslaved, man. I am enslaved to my work. I'm enslaved to my job. I'm enslaved to this relationship. I'm enslaved to need for success. I'm enslaved to need for get good grades. I'm enslaved. I'm not free. First step towards freedom is rigorous honesty with yourself to say, I am not and acknowledge that you need Jesus. See, see, are you here? Acknowledge, right? You, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. The only thing, the only person who says the affirmation, the love, the unconditional acceptance that you're looking for, you're longing for your entire life is here. Salvation is not about going to heaven. Salvation is about finding that sense of this is what God created me to be. By the way, my favorite Save Me song is Queens. Anybody else? Yeah. Just Google save me when you go home and just look at the lyrics of people that wrote it. It's this common humanity, this longing to go, somebody love me, somebody accept me, somebody affirm me, somebody, somebody, somebody. And good old Christians sit in pews every Sunday and go, I'm saved. No, you're not. You're enslaved. The city also reveals the power of the gospel to transform relationships. This is one of my favorite passages, you guys, in all of the Bible. Let's just look at it together. And I'll just make a couple of points. Acts 11, 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution and connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greek also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. 22, news of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they went, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw, make a note of this. If you underline, highlight your Bible. When he, when he saw the evidence of the grace of God, what did he see? We'll get to that in a moment. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Verse 25, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch the disciples each according to his ability decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea this they did sending their gift by Barnabas and Paul this is the first time that the gospel in the book of Acts is brought into a major city and the city is Antioch let me show you where Antioch is it's the capital of Syria can you see it it's right here it's right can you see it it's right up there can you see it it's, it's right there I need. A, I forgot a pointer. I forgot. I forgot like a pointer. It's like right. Can you see it, Syria? Yes. Like go. Like right. Okay. Anyway, you need to. Antioch, Antioch is the capital of Syria. It's the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire. Third largest city. Does it sound like anything else? Third largest city. Chicago is the third largest city. It is twenty times bigger than Jerusalem. Twenty times. And Antioch is founded by this man, Seleucus. He is one of the top generals of Alexander the Great. History books, anybody? Alexander the Great. Seleucus. Why did Seleucus name the city Antioch after his father, whose name was Antiochus? So Seleucus finds the city Antioch. Go back to the map, please. And he finds this. Go back, can you go back to the map? Thank you. So I could show you where. Okay, right. I wish I had a pointer, something, guitar, something. Maybe the breath. It's, it's right it's right there, okay? It's right there. All right, anyway. Antioch has Chinese people living in it. 
Indians, Greeks, Romans. It is a multi-ethnic international city because of where it is. It is surrounded by different countries and different continents. Here's what and he, here's what Lucas is. He builds a city. Listen to this. He builds a city. And like they did in the cities back then, he builds a wall outside the city to protect it from outsiders. But then he did this, and historians found this. He built 18 different ethnic quarters inside the city. Ethnic different quarters inside the city. Why? A simple racial incident would lead to violence. And people would murder and kill each other. Apparently, Seleucus knows a pagan general, something about the human heart. He knows that you and I walk around every day going, I need to feel better about myself. And here's how I'm going to feel better about myself. I'm going to compare myself to you and to you and to you. You know we do this, right? We walk around going, I'm going to compare myself to you to make myself feel better. So either we, one of the ways we do that is Racially. We go, I'm better than you. I can feel better about myself because of my race. So God creates the world and human beings create the borders. And the city of Antioch has 18 quarters, ethnic quarters, where people are separated. The, the gospel goes to Antioch. And this is the reason why people in Jerusalem are like, What? Barnabas, go see, go see. Because Barnabas comes to Antioch, and here's what he sees. He sees Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, arm in arm, walking into the marketplace together. What? They're coming out of their ethnic quarters, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free. They're coming out of ethnic quarters, and they are in arm in arm, singing, worshiping, going to the marketplace, raising their children together. Marrying each other. Bearing each other. For the first time ever. This is the reason why people in Jerusalem are like, there's no way it's happening. Go see. And Barnabas comes and sees the evidence of the grace of God. What does he see? He sees this multi-ethnic, multicultural community of people that are shattering barriers. They're calling each other by first names. Why? Because last names indicated your status in society. It's the first time that they're called Christians. Why? Because up until that point, whatever the religion was, it was identified with your race or ethnicity. So there was the Jewish religion called Judaism. There was the Greek religion. But for the first time, people are like, this is not related to one's race and ethnicity. Yeah, so we'll call them Christians. It was so inclusive that anybody can be a part of it. And you guys, you need to know this. This multi-ethnic, multicultural, reconciled community wasn't just the result of the gospel. It became the reason why people believe the gospel. Did you hear what I said? It became the reason why people believed. The reason why people believe the gospel is because they said, this has never been done before. How is it that these people who are not supposed to get along are getting along? People said, what must have happened to you? It was just a result of conversion. It became the cause of conversion. This is the reason why people had no idea that the gospel was this powerful until it came to the city and radically transformed relationships. It did something that no human power, no human ingenuity, no human social experiment could. Can I show you the city we live in? That's the city we live in. Red dots represent white people. Blue dots represent black folks. Orange dot represent Hispanic folks or Latinos. And then, yes, I like to make fun of this. It's so depressing. I look at the map. Do you know there's only like 4% of Asians in all of Illinois? By the way, can I just share something with you guys? It's the reason why. Sometimes it's like out-of-body experience when I go to like Southern California. Those of you that are from Southern California. Because I'll be sitting in a coffee shop and literally there are nobody but Asians. And I'm going, doo doo doo. where am I? Where, where am I? And a white person will walk in. I'm like, whoa. But in Chicago, you guys know if you grew up in the Midwest, this is the world we live in. We live in our metaphorical ethnic quarters. We do! We do! Let me show you. This is the map of our church. You've seen this before. Why do we come with the same people and leave with the same people? 
This is very telling in some ways about who we are as a church. Here's the question that I want to ask you. Here's the question that I ask you. If people were able to see you and me in our relationships, would they be able to see the power of the gospel that is the ability to reconcile relationships that would be impossible apart from God? Are there people in your life and my life where people are going to say, the only reason why that's even possible was because of Jesus? Is there something about the way our community lives, you guys, that we are an outpost of the kingdom of God? Listen, our mission statement says we want to be a city within a city. And what of that means? One of the reasons, or one of the, one of the meaning, meanings of that is that our, our church has people that are representative of the people of Chicago. But if we stop there, we are not living into our mission. Because people need to be able to come and go, not just, well, it's a really diverse church. They need to be come and go, you're worshiping together, you're doing life together, you're eating together, you're raising kids together, you're marrying each other, you're burying each other. It takes time. It's hard. But man, when people see a glimpse of that, they don't go, well, great is your church. They go, great is your God church the city of Chicago needs a testimony of the reconciling power of the gospel our city needs a group of people who say because of Jesus we look radically different from the rest of the city Let me put it this way. For those of you that are going, man, Peter, you're preaching to the choir. These relationships of mine, when you think about it, if it wasn't for the city and wasn't for Jesus, you would have never met. True? If it wasn't for the city and Jesus, you'd have never met. And But because of the city and because of Jesus, you have relationships that you can look at and go, my God is a great God, isn't he? Do you have relationships like that? Do you have relationships like that, church? Are we an apologetic for the kingdom of God? Lastly, the city reveals the power of the gospel to transform culture. What do I mean? This church, in the last two verses, 29 and 30, will eventually send money to the brothers in Jerusalem. Here's the thing. This church in Antioch will never, ever meet the brothers in Jerusalem. And yet the brothers in Jerusalem are going through enormous financial stress, enormous financial problems. And so what happens is this church gathers money and sends it to Jerusalem. Now, we know that that was a typical thing that Christians of that uh, of, of the early Roman, uh, early Christian, Christianity. Why? Because we know from history that, when, that, that, that cities were infested, sick, infested places because of the density. Think of Manhattan and think of it three times more crowded. And no toilets. These cities were sick, infested places and a plague would break out and what would people do? They would throw out their sons. They would throw out their daughters. They would throw out their parents into the streets because they didn't want to die. And Christians did what? They went around, gathered them, brought them home, risking their own lives. Why? Two reasons. They said, you know what? We've been saved by a limitless, without limit grace of Jesus. How could there possibly be a limit to what I do for others? Can I say that again? If you have been saved by a limitless, without grace, limit grace, how dare we go, there's limit to what I can do. And secondly, remember, they believe in the resurrection. So they said, this life is not the only life I'm ever going to have. This money is not the only money I'm ever going to have. This world is not the only world we're ever going to have. There is a resurrection coming. So you know what? I could live radically, fearlessly free and generous. That's why when the gospel came into the city and more socially troubled the cities were, people were able to go, wow, how is it possible that those people live the way they do? And they said, I believe in the resurrection and a better world that is to come. And people were like, whoa, are we doing that? Can I introduce you to the city of Chicago? Some of you already know this. 16.7% of Cook County residents live in poverty, which was up from 15.9% in 2009, surpassing the national poverty rate of 15.3%. The official poverty line, by the way, for an annual income family of four is $23,000. More than one in every 10 people 
So unemployed in Cook County. This is 2010 with an unemployment rate of 13.1%. This is your city. Within city limits, poverty rates were even worse at 22.5% or five, almost 600,000 people compared to 21.6% in 2009. With an unemployment rate of almost 15%, nearly one in every six people in the city limits are unemployed. Over 56,000 people who work full-time year-round still fall below the poverty line. So can we stop it with this stupid, stupid assumption that people who are poor don't want to work hard? Can we just shut that up? Nearly 210,000 people working part-time or part of the year still fall below the poverty line. Children, children, children. Children were particularly hit hard in Cook County. Almost 25%. Almost 300,000 children live in poverty last year. And in Chicago, one-third of all children live in poverty, totaling well over 200,000 kids. This is our city. This is our city. Housing that's affordable to low-income households is in high demand but in short supply. Let me give you a figure. In 2000, 116,000 people paid over half of their income to housing costs. 2010, that jumped to 142,000. Daniel, stand up for a second, please. Turn around, please. <laughs> I'm going to show you off. No, no, please stand up. Please stand up. I, I, wanna, I just want to say to you, Daniel, Lispada, and a group of men and women in our church are fighting, fighting to keep Lathrop homes in our neighborhood to stay affordable to large numbers of people who can't afford it. Our city wants to turn that. Our city, our city... Our city wants to turn that into a place where only the wealthy people could afford it to live. And Daniel and a group of women women in our church are saying, we want to fight so that people who live there now will not be displaced, but will have an affordable place to live. And I love and champion what Daniel and other people in our church are doing because this is our city. This is our city. Thank you, Daniel. Growing numbers of families are experiencing greater hardship as a consequence, need more food assistance. Last figure, year 2000, 182,000 people receive food stamps to help pay for food. In 2010, 236,000 people received food stamps. And I didn't know this. I apologize for my ignorance. But as Daniel and I corresponding, Daniel said he was actually at a point where he had to apply for food stamps. And he said, Peter, you would not believe how hard it was and how long it took. And then, of course, the thing that encouraged me more than anything, he said, if it wasn't for our church community and their generosity, I wouldn't have been able to make it. Thank you for being new community. Here's my question. Does our gospels have anything to say more than just resurrection, life after death? Do we believe in a God that brings resurrection out of current life circumstances? Do we believe in a God who, who brings about resurrection even in tough, social and economic situations and we have to be able to say as a church the answer is yes do you care about this city i'm sorry if this sounds corny but i'm going to put this up here what about operate operation occupy chicago what about if our church actually said there are four or five hundred of you that come to this church what if every single one of us took seriously this mandate that said Christianity is not about you being saved so you can go to heaven but Christianity is about you being reconciled to God but every day of my life I am called to sacrificially love you with my time with my resources with my money and with my life And what about if every single nook and cranny of our city that you live in, that you work in, that I play in, a kingdom witness lived his or her life that said, Jesus Christ could bring resurrection out of this. And let me show you how. What if we did that? What if all of Chicago experienced this from the people of God? Our city would be a different place. Our city would be a different place. So what can you do? Be like Barnabas. What do you mean? You know what Barnabas did? He came to Antioch. Most of the Christians, they were forced by persecution to go to different places. Barnabas comes to Antioch on his own and he stayed. Can I ask you a question? How many of you living in the city, you found it incredibly hard to build deep, authentic community? Raise your hands so that other people can... Really, it's that easy? 
It's hard because of the diversity, racial, socioeconomic, because of the busyness. But another reason is because we're so mobile. We're darn mobile. We're so mobile. We move, we move, we move. Every other year, it's like saying goodbye to somebody. So here's what I've challenged people. Here's what I've challenged people for years, and I stopped doing it. Here's my challenge to you. What can you do? Here's a simple question. Did you come to Chicago? Well, my plan was to stay here two years. Then I want to ask you, stay four. Well, my plan was to come here and be four years out of college, and I'm out of here. Stay eight. Well, my plan was just, you know, come here and kind of see, what about commit to living in the city of Chicago? Because I'm realizing that serving in the city and building relationships takes a long time. And we need a bunch of people who go, I'm not here temporarily. I'm willing to take down roots, Peter. Okay. Cece, you can wanna I'm gonna speak specifically two minutes to two excuses or reasons that people say. They go, I don't want to live here because it's not comfortable. Let's go on to the point number two. <laughs> no, let me just. How ridiculous is it that disciples of Jesus Christ says, the way I prioritize stuff in my life is, how uncomfortable is it? Because if it is, I don't want to do anything to it. How ridiculous is it? And what kind of witness and testimony is it as a disciple of Jesus Christ that we say, I make decisions and priorities based on how comfortable or uncomfortable it is. If it's comfortable, I'll do it. If it's uncomfortable, I'm going to stay away from it. What do we say? to the world what are we saying to the world when we go if it's uncomfortable i don't want to do it what are we saying here's what we're saying i don't want to be uncomfortable i don't want to do it i don't want to die to myself i don't want to do it is that what we're saying is that what i'm saying does anybody do anything good for god if they live where they want to live it's too comfortable Abraham, yes, Lord, pick up everything you have and go to a foreign land. I don't want to go. I need you to go. And you'll never quite feel at home. You'll always feel like a stranger. But it's there that I bless the world. Jesus, leave all the praise of heaven, all the praise of heaven, all the praise of heaven, and go and make yourself at home in the world. Second, I don't want to be here because it's not convenient. Love is not convenient. Loving our neighbors in the name of Jesus is not convenient. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Why? Because it's not on your terms. It's not on, my, it's not on my terms. When we love somebody, we are saying, God, I give you permission to send them my way according to your plans and their needs rather than my convenience. So being in the city means I drive past needs. And unless I'm cold, hard-hearted, I can't just drive past it over and over again without addressing it. That means that we have to get involved with our under-resourced neighbors. That means you have to get involved in these jacked-up Chicago public schools. That means you have to get involved in community and neighborhood associations. Love is not convenient. If it is, you're not loving right. If it's easy, you're not loving right. I want to end with this letter to finish the entire sermon series. And to me, it captured most beautifully, most perfectly what this entire sermon series is about. And I love getting these letters and emails from my brothers and sisters as part of the church family. You bless me so much. Pastor Peter, as I said last week when we talked, so many of your sermons seem to come just at the right time. And I really needed to be reminded of something. And this one, all in, is no exception. As I shared of late, I've been feeling like maybe the writing is on the wall when it comes to the future of my school. Much of the staff is feeling the overwhelming stress of working in West Englewood with students that present themselves with more challenges than even I can comprehend, even after working in the community for 11 years. In most cases, I am fairly sheltered from the academic stress felt by my coworkers since making the move to school librarian two years ago, which incidentally was an answer to the prayer that I hadn't even dared to pray. I'm so blessed that God knows exactly what I need even before I do. However, it is difficult to work in an environment where my co-workers are unhappy. And every year, I see extremely talented teachers take jobs at different schools. I'm left thinking, how can we make a sustainable difference when we can't even keep stable quality staff? At the end of this year, 
Many of our staff members are leaving. Some to stay at home with their children, some to move to states to be closer to family, and still some, because they are talented, have better opportunities. I was seriously thinking that it may be time for me to move on as well until God used you in your series to remind me that I am exactly where I need to be. Close to 15 years ago, I felt God clearly asked me to teach in Chicago. Up until that point, I thought that one day I would live, end up living and teaching in a rural setting. But I jumped all in, so to speak. God is so incredibly wise not to show us exactly where he is taking us when we first say yes to his question of will you go. Because if I had known what saying yes, I'm all in meant, I would have run, run screaming the other way. Does anybody else know what she's talking about? You don't want to know God's will for your life a year from now. Because if you did, you're going to run the other way. Trust me. Last spring, this year, All In has meant forging a relationship with and mentoring, I changed her name, a young woman, young lady named Michelle. Last spring, Michelle stole my phone solely because the opportunity presented itself and her dad taught her to steal. But God used this act to bring us together. After figuring out Michelle had taken the phone, I forgave her and she began coming to talk to me before and after school every day. This began a relationship that even I can't quite comprehend except to say if God has forgiven me for my sins that nailed him to the cross, what other reaction can I have but to forgive? Staff members still tell me they're baffled by this reaction, but they can't argue the fact that it has had on Michelle's life. All in has meant losing sleep, crying over, and praying for Michelle when she ran away from home this fall because her father beats her. All in has meant visiting her in the hospital when she had pneumonia and neither parent stayed with her. All in has meant picking her up and dropping her off every day for school and spending time with her when it isn't convenient for me. But all in is only about my students. See, I've been challenged and changed because of the relationships with my coworkers of different races. I've had to stare at my own prejudgments in the face and see them for what they are. Walking into my job on day one, I stupidly thought that I was there to help these inner city kids, but I have been here, there to learn and be blessed by others. Through all this, God has been teaching me about who he is and how he loves. These lessons, of course, have come at work, but also in church body that challenges me to look at the gospel differently than I did growing up. The lessons have come as a homeowner and the incredible ways my neighbors and I do community in our condo building. And then she said this, it was encouraging. I could go on and on, but mostly thank you for saying yes, I'm all in to God when he called you to plant new community. Because the church and the Holy Spirit has strengthened me every year since I've moved to Chicago. And in those moments at work when a student says, I love you, or I love coming to the library, I know I have made a difference to that child. But also I know that I couldn't have done it without the Holy Spirit in my life. And I'm continually amazed to realize it didn't have to be me that did it, except that God redeemed me and chose to use me and my glorious mess to glorify him. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 71:14, which says, But as for me, I will continually hope and praise you yet more and more. I have so many hopes for myself and for my students, but it is partly because of the gospel and what I have learned that regardless of where God is leading me, I will be able to praise him more and more. Amy, thank you for that email. Thank you. Let's pray, church.